This morning, what I'd, uh, we're going to start out a little bit differently because uh, I'm going to invite uh, Ron and Vicki Roth to come to the front. Uh, we want to uh, welcome them down front. Uh, Ron and Vicki have been uh, members and leaders in this church for over 10 years, uh, faithfully serving uh, you and, and uh, serving this community and uh, Ron's been an elder for the last three years, and he's been our elder chairman for the last two. And of course, uh, they have also been, Amy and I, like best friends for years and years and years. We've known them for almost 28 years now. I probably met y'all, I know, 28 years ago when I saw y'all lead worship for the first time at Hill Country, Austin. And so all that said, it is with great sadness that we uh, need to pray for them and send them out because... Uh, Ron has retired this year from uh, like a lifelong of being an educator, and he has taken a position at the Fellowship uh, Church to start their new uh, Christian elementary school, uh, the Fellowship Christian School, which will hopefully grow into a middle school and even beyond that. And so as uh, sad as that is for us, what our loss, I believe, is our city's gain as they invest in families and children who will be unapologetically loyal to Christ. And so, guys, we love y'all and we miss you. It doesn't mean we can't hang out, but uh, I won't remember your name after today. <laughs> so just know that. So I'm going to ask any elders uh, in our service we have present uh, to come and join me laying hands on them. And uh, I think we just have one in this service. And so let's, let's pray for them and uh, thank God for what He's given us in them. And uh, Lord, we do... Uh, thank you, uh, God. Thank you for uh, like what feels like a lifetime of friendship with this uh, precious couple and that uh, you've uh, given them to Amy and I and you've given them to the church that God that they have uh, been a blessing in every church they've gone to. They've served faithfully. They've led worship. They've made disciples. And we know even as uh, they leave here and go to the fellowship that you will use them greatly. I pray that you'd fill them with your spirit, you give them the gifts and the abilities they need uh, to finish well uh, in their course in following you. Bless them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We love you guys. And uh, if you have any questions or uh, interest in sending your kids to a great new Christian elementary school, I believe uh, this fall they'll be up through third grade this fall. Uh, you can see Ron or email him or ask me and I'll connect you with him. So with that said, let's start our sermon. We are in week four of this series called Unapologetic. And in this series, just to review, uh, we've been talking about what it means to be unapologetically loyal to Christ. See, unapologetic Christians understand that all of life like all of life is a test of your loyalty to Christ. Every decision you may make, every opportunity you have, every relationship you're involved in is an opportunity for you. It's a test of who you will be most loyal to. Who will have the allegiance of your heart. In fact, uh, unapologetic Christians kind of obsess over this question. Like what would unapologetic loyalty look like like in this specific situation. And they obsess over that question and they ask it in 2022 with greater frequency because they're living in a brand new world. 
Like the the world that your children and your grandchildren and great-grandchildren will inhabit is a very different world than the one you grew up in. Like I read a really fascinating article this past week in uh, the uh, periodical First Things by a guy named Aaron Wren in which he talked about the three worlds of evangelicalism, the three worlds that kind of have existed in the last 30 or 40 years that the evangelical church, us, have had to kind of function in. And so the first world he describes is positive world. This is the world the church inhabited up till 1994. And that world is what you think of it. It's a world that where society at large had a mostly positive view of Christianity. I mean, this was the era where if you wanted to run for public office, you needed to be a member of a church because like, we're not going to vote for somebody who's not a member of a church. And so everybody kind of just went to church. The, the, the morals of the church were mirrored by the morals of society. And that's how it was until about 1994. And that's when neutral world was ushered in. And in neutral world, like once again, uh, the name says it all, the culture as a large at large is neutral when it comes to Christianity. Like Christianity no longer had a privileged status, but right, it wasn't that it was disfavored, it was just one among many options. And so if you were a Christian, the response of culture would be good for you. Like it, we're different, like this is a pluralistic society, but your moral standards still have something good to say about you and maybe to culture at large. But then in 2014, uh, negative world was ushered in. And that's where we are living right now. And he writes, society at large has come to have a negative view of Christianity. Being known as a Christian is a social negative, especially among those who are the elite. Christian morality is expressly repudiated and seen as a threat to the public good and to the new public moral order. And so, my question this morning is, what would it look like to be unapologetically loyal to Christ and to His bride in negative world. In a world where it might cost you something. As Princeton professor Robert George has said, to be a witness to the Gospel today is to make oneself a marked man or woman. It is to expose oneself to scorn and reproach to unashamedly proclaim the gospel in its fullness is to place in jeopardy one's security, one's personal aspirations and ambitions, the peace and tranquility one enjoys, and one's standing in polite society. And so here in 2022, in a sense, we find ourselves warming our hands around the fire, not unlike the Apostle Peter, and someone turns to us and asks, wait a minute, aren't you a Christian? Aren't you one of His followers as well? Aren't you a follower of the Galilean? Like we're facing the test of Peter, and how do we respond? 
Can I just tell you, there, there are many who claim the name of Christ and I've read their responses and heard them personally where their answer is something like this. Hey, you know what? I know the church is jacked up. Like I know that the church has done a lot of terrible, like inexcusable, unex- like unforgivable, despicable, despicable, deplorable things over the years, but... I'm not one of those Christians. Like, have you ever heard an answer like that? Like, I know that the church is really messed up. It's really jacked up, but I'm different, right? Like, very often Christians in this category will make less of the church so they can make much of themselves. I'm not one of those. As if they're the cream of the crop or the one good egg in the basket. As if, like... Like somehow their virtue is found in standing afar off and saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Especially, especially like that tax collector over there. But like I've, I've stood the test and I am virtuous. Like these are the people who allow the enemies of the cross to define the church as they stand at a distance, shaking their heads in mock disgust. How do you speak about the church of Jesus Christ? How do you talk about the bride? Like imagine this scenario, okay? Like what if I was up here preaching third hour next week and some young couple visits and they're newlyweds. This is their first Sunday after the service. The man comes down, the wife stays back there, but the man comes down here and he wants to meet me, talk talk with me, get to know me, get to know the church. And he says something like this to me. Man, man, it's great to meet you, Pastor. I really want you to meet my wife. But, but I have to warn you. She's not much to look at. I mean, I mean, I want you to meet her, but you know what? She has actually put on a lot of weight since we got married. And we're newlyweds. Like, I don't know where she's going with this. And, and I, just to be honest, she has zero fashion sense. Like her, her hair is kind of like a rat's nest. And she has this odor about her that's kind of like cheese that's been left on the counter too long. But I want you to meet her. I really want you to meet her. Oh, by the way, she's a bit of a racist. Okay? But you know what? She has a lot of potential. <laughs> Honey, come, come here and meet the pastor. Like, I mean, that would be crazy, right? That would be absurd. That would be disgraceful. And yet, guys, that is exactly how Christians often talk about the church. Like we just pull out every bad thing that has ever been done in the name of Christ and we just like vomit it up over people. And we say, but you know what? She has a lot of potential. Christians, we should love the church Why? Because Jesus loves the church. We should lay down our lives for the church because Jesus laid down His life for the church. We should be unapologetically loyal to the bride of Christ because Jesus, even today, is unapologetically loyal to His bride. And so, I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew 16. 
We're going to jump around a lot this morning, but I want us to look at the very first reference in Matthew 16, the very first reference to the church in the Bible. Like this morning, we're going to look at and see how Scripture defines the church, and we want you to understand that Jesus is the one. Like Jesus defines His church. It was His idea. It was His invention. It's His bride, His body, His household, His assembly. And so how does Jesus and how does the Scripture define the church? In Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13, it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. By the way, Jesus wasn't Jeremiah or Elijah. He wasn't just a merely a prophet and He certainly wasn't John the Baptist. And so Jesus says to them and He asked them this question. The most important question they would ever answer and the most important question you will ever answer. But who do you say I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Hey, Simon, right answer. That's exactly who I am. Blessed are you because you did not figure this out for yourself. You weren't just sitting there under the fig tree kind of chilling and thinking about me and you had this aha moment. God is the one who opened your eyes and opened your heart and made you understand exactly who I am. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So Jesus says, I will build my church. The word there in the Greek is the word ekklesia, ek, meaning uh, out of, and kaleo, which means to call. It's used 115 times in the New Testament to refer to the called out ones. That's literally what it means. Like this word appears in ancient classical literature to refer to a, an assembly of citizens that have been summoned together by a decree for a common purpose. It could be translated literally assembly or gathering. Jesus is basically saying to His disciples on this rock, on the rock of this confession of my deity, I will call a holy assembly. I will gather my people. And guys, here's what the Scripture says about the church, how it defines it. We are that assembly. Like we are the ones called out from among the nations. We are the ones that somehow the Spirit of God just brought life where there was death and gave faith where there was none. Like we are the assembly. On this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Like 
the gates of hell is, is something that a lot of commentators write about and like wonder about what does that even mean? Is that the, the power of darkness? Is that the power of Satan? Is that what won't prevail against the church? I don't know about you. I, I've never really attacked anybody with a gate. Like if it said that the weapons of hell would not prevail, that would make sense. But when it says that the gates of hell, what is he talking about? Well, literally, he's talking about the gates of Hades. Hades is the abode of the dead. And so what Jesus is saying is that, listen, the, the power of death, the fear of death will not conquer the church. In fact, Jesus is saying, listen, even my death on the cross will not keep me from building my church. Even the death of these apostles after me will not like thwart the victory of the church. Like death has been defeated once and for all. It's lost its power. Like Jesus is victorious over death. And then it's important to note that the first time church is ever mentioned in the New Testament by Jesus, He defines it within the context of His mission. I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. What is He talking about? Like, What, what are these keys? What Jesus is saying is, listen, because of what you just said about Me, because of your confession and my deity, I'm going to give you these keys that actually unlock heaven for anyone who will respond to the gospel. Like that's what the keys of heaven is. Like Jesus is giving the keys to heaven to not like some political assembly, not to just some random group of people or individuals. He give, he's giving them to the church. It's the power and message of the gospel. And so Jesus said that the church would unite around its confession of His deity, that it would face off against death itself, and it would open up heaven for anyone who would respond to the gospel. I mean, that's kind of a tall order. That's, a very, that's very different from, hey, I want you to meet my wife, but she's nothing to look at. Like this past weekend, uh, on Friday and Saturday, I was at the uh, Association of Hill Country Churches kind of banquet and conference uh, with all the other lead pastors from our association churches in greater Austin. Guys, it was a real honor just to be there uh, and to be numbered among those men and women who are pouring their lives out to reach the city of Austin. They're pouring their lives out to plant churches all over this city. They're, they're pouring their lives out to multiply churches that will multiply go gospel conversations so that every man, woman, and child in greater Austin would have repeated opportunities to hear and respond to the message of the gospel. Like that's what we're all about as an association. That's why we're here. And if this is your church home, you get to be a part of that. And even if this is not your church home, that's what church is all about. Like that's what your church is all about. Like if you're a believer in a local church, you get to be a part of this thing that God is doing. In fact, this morning I finished my shred. You know, in the month of January, I started January 1st, finished the day reading from Genesis to Revelation. And that's a lot. And you know what I see throughout the book? Like this these 66 books that we call the Bible, I see the church. Even in the Old Testament. I see the church when God tells a man named, named Abram that He's going to bless him 
and that His children, His seed, would be a blessing to the nations. What is He talking about? He's talking about the church. He's talking about the Gospel going forward, about the death and resurrection of Jesus, and Jesus calling to Himself men and women from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. He's talking about the church. We are a part of that. In Ephesians 3, Paul puts it this way, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden from a- for ages in God who created all things. And here's the mystery that was hidden for ages. So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be known, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. You read through the Old Testament and God has this mystery that is unfolding. And here is the mystery. That through the church of Jesus Christ, like the wisdom of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, the beauty of God, the justice and power of God will be put on display where? To the angels. Like angels look in astonishment at the church of Jesus Christ. Well, she ain't much to look at. But she's got a lot of potential. That's not the image of church you get from Scripture. Like in the next, like I've just been thinking about our own church in the next two years. What would God have us do in the next two years to answer His call and be faithful to that? Like elders and I and our staff have been wrestling over this. We know that one of the things we're going to do in the next two years that we're planning is to build a new building. Uh, on the land that we uh, just acquired uh, this past summer. And that's great. That's a lot. That's a big deal to figure out how to do that, how to fund that, all that kind of stuff. Well, also in the next two years, we'd like to plant a church in the city of Taylor. Guys, that's a big deal. I mean, that's a lot. But also in the next two years, we would like to continue to strengthen the churches in our own city as we build relationships with the other pastors and staff to encourage them in reaching this city with us as our partners in the Gospel. And in the next two years, we really want to focus on strengthening our church through personal evangelism as we reach our own neighbors. And we need to make disciples. And so, like, I, I think through all the things that we need to do as a church, like reaching our community, upping our giving to world missions. Like, I even think if I was smart, like if I was really smart, I'd pick one of those things and do it well. Let's just pick one of those and do that. But you know, I want to plan in such a way that it's doomed to failure unless Christ is in it. And you know what? Christ is still building His church. And I think by God's grace, we can build a church and plant a church and give more to missions 
and send out more people to reach our community and invest in the other churches in the city of Huddo and do all that in the next two years. Because Christ is the one who's doing it and we just want to join Him in that. Guys, that's what we get to be a part of. The Scripture says that we are His sacred assembly and that we are the household of God. Ephesians 2 says, you are no longer strangers or aliens. That's your past identity. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Like this speaks of our new family, our new loyalties. Like when I led my sons to the Lord, the first thing I told them after they prayed to receive Christ was, hey guys, I'm not just your dad now, but I'm your brother. Like you have a whole different relationship with me now. Like that's what Jesus was speaking about when He was talking about what the church is supposed to do and what it's supposed to give us. See, like the Gospel is incredible. It doesn't simply change individual lives. It builds a brand new community from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Multi-ethnic, right? Multi-generational. Like across all nations and across all eras, that is the church. Jesus put it this way. He tells His disciples, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for My sake and for the Gospel who will not receive a hundredfold when? Now. Now. In this life. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus is not preaching some prosperity gospel. Believe in Jesus and you're going to get a hundred houses. Right? What Jesus is saying is, listen guys, I know that you've left everything to follow Me, but you ain't seen nothing yet. Like anyone who has left things to follow me will in this life receive back 100 fold. And I got to tell you, for the last 40 years of following Christ, I've seen this come true over and over in my own life. I have more brothers, more sisters, more mothers and fathers, more homes that he has provided because what Jesus is talking about here is the church. Like, where are these houses? You're living in them. Where are my brothers and sisters? My mothers and fathers? Right here in front of me. This is what He promises. And so my question would be, how important is loyalty within your own family? I mean, it's a pretty big deal. How much more important should it be in the family of God to one another? Like, I mean, the world is already attacking us. Why would we spend time attacking ourselves and one another? Like, that's why I think the, the, the idea, the concept of church hurt, if you've heard that, the reason, that's why I think church hurt can be worse than, than just a normal hurt from someone else. Because this is the last place it should happen. My goodness. Like this is the last place we should be turned on each other and attacking one another. Like our enemy has used like what I call the unholy trinity. The moral revolution, the last election, and the pandemic to divide the body of Christ 
And I believe that there are those probably within our own church who have contributed to this. While some of y'all have fought against it. And guys, that's what we're supposed to be about because we're the assembly. We're the family of God. And we are the body of Christ. Ephesians 1 says that God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. The idea, the concept of the body of Christ really speaks of our identity and our responsibility. This is how it works. What the world sees in us, it assumes in Christ. Like they assume of Jesus Christ what they're seeing in us. How we love each other or don't love each other. How we treat each other. How we sacrifice for one another. Like we can either be proclaiming the reality of the Gospel, the deity of Christ, the resurrection, by how we live with one another, or we could be denying it. We are the body of Christ. And so, when we do a series called Unapologetic, that doesn't mean you never say you're sorry. In fact, maybe you need to say you're sorry more than ever. Right? Like, this series is called Unapologetic, but we still apologize and seek forgiveness when we have sinned. Like, if you've sinned against somebody, ask their forgiveness. Like, we, we are still honest about the church's historical inconsistencies because they're just that. Like when the church behaved in a way that did not look like Jesus or match His Word, like that, that is something we need to be honest about. And we still grieve when people are wounded by churches and by church leaders. But even in the midst of that, we remain unapologetically loyal to the church because we are His assembly, His family, His body, and finally, we are the bride of Christ. When we talk about the Bride of Christ, a title given to the church in the New Testament, and referenced and prophesied in the Old Testament, like it, that term speaks of intimacy, of passion, and of faithfulness. Do you know that God Himself actually invented the institution of marriage not because Adam was lonely? That was secondary. God Himself invented the institution of marriage to show us something about the church and its relationship with Christ. Like that's what we read in Ephesians 5, a passage that when we read it, we always just think about husbands and wives, but there's something bigger, more beautiful, more spectacular going on in this passage. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he may sanctify her and having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that he might be that she might be holy and without blemish like we're supposed to love our wives like Christ loved the church Christ gave Himself up for the church. Christ is the one cleansing the church to present her back to Himself in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. 
because we are members of His body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Leave, cleave, become one. But then he adds this. This mystery is profound, but I'm saying that it refers to Christ and His church. Now for men especially, the thought of being the bride of Christ is a little weird. But guys, that's who we are. That's our identity that we're given in Scripture. We are the bride of Christ. When I read this, I think of my favorite movie, which is It's a Wonderful Life with Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed. Like the best character in that. I mean, Jim, George Bailey is amazing, but Mary Bailey, his wife, is just amazing the whole way through. She's so faithful. She's so loyal to him. And there's this one scene where he finally gets it. Where he finally sees her. This girl who's been in love with him since she was a child. And it shows her face in a close-up and there's this like glow around her head. It's, it's kind of silly. It's kind of ridiculous. It's very 40s cinema. And it's spectacular. Because he sees her. He sees his bride, and you, you see that show and or that movie, and it's it's over the top. It's really romanticized, but is it? I mean, because listen to this. I read this this morning as I finished my shred in Revelation 19. It says, "Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah." For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Husbands, do you remember when you saw your bride for the very first time? The doors opened at the back of your church or you know, wherever you were and you saw her there standing dressed in white? That's what this is. Like, I remember that. In fact, here's a picture of what I saw. There's my wife with a tall drink of water, Ed Peckham, giant of a man standing there. And my um, youth pastor who did part of my wedding, and his son, who is my best friend, always used to tell me this, and it's been my practice ever since, and I've done dozens and dozens and dozens of wedding ceremonies. They told me, hey, when everybody turns to look at the bride, don't look at the bride. You turn and look at the groom. Something about seeing his face the first time he sees that woman is just, it's incredible. This was me. The first time I saw Amy. Oh, young Bobby with all that hair. (laughs) Looking at your bride and she takes your breath away. Guys, that's the church. Maybe not as you know it, but it's the church as you should know it. Something in splendor. Something dressed in fine linen. Something beautiful and clean and whole and washed. That is the bride of Christ. Do you love the bride of Christ? 
Like I know you love the invisible universal church. They're easy to love. But do you love the local church with all its warts? All its funny smells like cheese left out on the counter, right? Do you love ordinary believers in Christ? I got to tell you, I, I love the church. I love this church. I love the pastors in this city who are trying to do exactly what we're trying to do. I love Russell and Johnny and David. And I love Joel and Ski and Joseph. Men who are pouring their lives out to reach Hutto just like we are. They're not our competition. They're our partners in the Gospel. They're part of the church. And we will be with them forever. Here's the test I'd like you to take. The loyalty test. When the church is criticized by our culture, when it's canceled because it stood with Christ, do you stand with it? Do you stand with your true family? Some of the best advice I was ever given as a younger pastor was this. By my mentor in ministry, he told me, Bobby, you take care of the bride and the groom will take care of you. You take care of the bride and the groom will take care of you. Can I just tell you, that's great advice not just for pastors, but for each one of us. Like, if you came up to me after a service and told me how much you loved me and then went into how much you didn't love Amy, I would punch you. That would not be a way to win my favor. And it's not the way to win the favor of Christ to run down His bride. Like, do you long to see? Like, do you long for what Jesus sees and says about the church to be what the nations see and say about the church? Do you pray for your local church? Like, I, I just wonder, and in closing, let me ask you this. I, I wonder that I know that the unholy trinity has been used to divide churches throughout our city. I mean, I talked with these pastors this weekend about the same thing, the unholy trinity of the election, the pandemic, and the moral revolution. But we also determined that uh, what the enemy meant for evil, God has meant for good. And over the last couple years, we've seen people come back to church after a lockdown, and they came because they wanted to be here. They, 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 they came like not because it gave them some kind of a social clout. That's gone. They came and breathed in each other's air even though they may get sick by it. Why? Because they knew where else would we go? Jesus alone has the words of life. And so guys, the election tried to divide us, but we remembered that You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. There's one King. The pandemic tried to divide us, but we remembered that Jesus defeated death and that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And the moral revolution thinks it's going to win, but we have the keys to the kingdom of heaven and He sent us out to unlock it for them. They're not our enemies. We have an enemy. We're on a rescue mission. That's the church. Let's pray. As we prepare our hearts for a time of communion, I just want you to bow your head and close your eyes.
And I want you to listen to this Scripture from Revelation chapter 19. We've seen the image of the bride, but unlike the scenario where Amy walks in the door and I only have eyes for her, in Revelation 19, the groom arrives and it's the bride who only has eyes for him. Listen to these words. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice He judges and makes war. His eyes are like a blazing fire and on His head are many crowns. He has a name written on Him that no one knows but He Himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And His name is the Word of God. This morning, I don't know if you are coming with past woundedness from church, church hurt. Some, some of the best counsel I ever received was from my youth pastor who did my wedding. He had been fired at our home church for no reason. It was political. It was despicable. I was angry and I was bitter. Bitter against my home church. And he took me to lunch at my favorite Chinese restaurant. He knew how to win my heart. And he said, Bobby, there are always going to be people in the church who will do that. That's going to happen. Life in a fallen world, right? But then he said these four words that changed my life and that have echoed in my heart and mind for over 35 years. He said, but Jesus isn't like that. Jesus isn't like that. And if you want to be a, if you want to be a pastor, if you want to be a churchgoer for the long haul, Paul, and remain faithful to Him. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Father, I thank You for the Gospel. That not because of church attendance, not because of cleaning up our act, not because of any good thing that we could do or bad thing that we could stop doing, that we are acceptable in Your sight, but solely because of sheer grace. Because Jesus became our substitute on the cross. Because He took our sin upon Himself. And when we respond to this message, He clothes us in His righteousness. Lord, we thank You that the church is dressed in fine linen because it was given to her. Not because she earned it or cleaned it up for herself. We thank You for grace. In Jesus' name, Amen.